Welcome to Linda's Corner, a podcast created to inspire hope, increase joy, and motivate positive change. Hi, my name is Linda Bjork. I'm an author, teacher, speaker, blogger, and founder and executive director of Hope for Healing, which is a nonprofit charity designed to help alleviate symptoms of depression and anxiety, relieve stress, build confidence and self esteem, and heal relationships. You can learn more by visiting our website at hopeforhealingfoundation.org. For today's episode, I'm going to share a segment from one of my books called Crushed. If you're joining us for the first time, I would suggest that you start at the first podcast, since stories tend to make more sense when you read them, or listen to them, in order from the beginning to the end. Chapter 25 Ping Pong Balls Are you okay? my daughter asked. I'm fine, I said dismissively and changed the subject. The truth is that I was not fine. I felt disturbed and angry. I tried one of those stupid journaling things, and now my mind was a whirl. I started with, I feel worthless because, but the lines seemed to blur between all the sections of my messed up blueprint of identity. Five pages later, I tore it up, and the paper was gone, but it was not out of my head yet. Some of the things that came up are really bothering me. They are experiences at school that I had long forgotten. I felt rather invisible at home, so I threw myself into my schoolwork. I was a good student and got excellent grades. In high school, I was ranked number one out of 700 graduating seniors. I had two friends who were a very close second and third, and it was a challenge to maintain that top spot. The three of us were both friends and adversaries. When we took the ACT test, I got a very good score, high enough to get a four-year scholarship at the university of my choice. My score also had the prideful benefit of beating my two friends. When an opportunity came to retake the ACT, I didn't bother, because I didn't need to. But my friends retook the test and improved their scores. One beat me by one point, and the other beat me by two points. I didn't care. I didn't think it mattered. However, when the school determined the valedictorian, they chose to use the ACT as the deciding factor rather than GPA. My friend who beat me by two points was selected as valedictorian. The friend who had beaten me by one point was selected as salutatorian, and I was given nothing. It felt like they literally changed the rules just to exclude me. I was devastated and humiliated. This was one time in my life when my mother went to bat for me and visited the school to ask why they had done this. Their response was to invite me to be co-salutatorian, which is a term they made up to mean third place. I was invited to the end of the year award assembly. My friend who had been awarded the honor of valedictorian was called up to the stage again and again to receive award after award, but they didn't even call my name for honor roll. It was as if they had invited me for the sole purpose of rubbing my defeat in my face. Afterwards, an administrator handed me a couple pieces of paper and said, they forgot to call out your name. 
Here are your certificates. There was no apology and no announcement of correction. I was once again humiliated and passed over. Top students were selected in various categories and were honored with a picture and plaque hanging in the main hall. I was selected as top overall scholar. However, when I returned to the school the following year to support a friend's music concert, I noticed that all the pictures of the top scholars from the previous year were still hanging in the hallway, except mine. I had been taken down and symbolically erased. I was no longer attending the school, but they still found ways to belittle and humiliate me. This happened decades ago. Not a soul on earth cares that I didn't get to be valedictorian, or didn't have my name called at an awards assembly, or had my picture removed from a wall. I had completely forgotten about it until then. And now, it felt like it happened yesterday. The shame, humiliation, and anger were as fresh as wet paint. My academic success had been my source of identity and pride. The one thing I knew I was good at. And they flushed it and me down the toilet. I think I'm going to have a little chat with the faculty and administration of the high school that served during the year when I graduated. I think it's time for my second yelling, swearing, complete conversation. Chapter 26. The First Share The complete conversation did not go the way I expected. I thought I would be yelling, but instead... I was sobbing. This was also the very first time that when it came to the part where I'm supposed to say sorry and apologize, that I couldn't think of anything that I'd done wrong. I racked my brain and couldn't come up with a single thing that was my fault. So I simply said, I'm sorry for feeling that way. Please forgive me. Then completed the series with a conversation with God and another with my 17-year-old self. The experience was strangely cathartic. The recently dug-up memory was still fresh in my mind, but the associated feelings of shame and anger dissipated. It simply didn't matter as much anymore. I was glad that there are two tools for releasing negative emotions. The journaling brought it up, but didn't get rid of it. Maybe I'm not doing it right. I don't know. I'm still learning. But it took the complete conversation to be able to let it go. I felt safe enough and strong enough after the complete conversation to do something I hadn't dared do before. I shared this journal with my adult children and allowed them to read it. It was so scary to invite them into the secret recesses of my soul which leaves me vulnerable. But each one responded with love and support. Many tears were shed as they became aware of my struggles, heartache, and pain. I had more members on my team. I wasn't so alone. Someday, I would be brave enough to share this with my husband. 
but I feared being vulnerable to him more than anyone. Chapter 27 Another Long-Forgotten Memory Yet another ping-pong ball surfaced. It amazes me the things that can be erased from our thoughts. A friend mentioned being sexually molested as a child, and it triggered another long-forgotten memory. I was about eight years old. It wasn't a family member, which was wonderful, because I haven't seen this person in years and will probably never see him again. I now see that his primary objective was to dominate and humiliate me. The clear message was, I am more powerful than you, and I can do anything to you that I want. I don't remember a lot of detail except him laughing at me. I never told anyone because I was humiliated and ashamed. It's so unfair that a perpetrator transfers the guilt and shame to the victim. I chose to let this one go. He shamed me long enough. Chapter 28. What it means to be a woman. I needed a few days to recover before I was ready to journal again and tackle the next ping-pong ball of pain. I got a triple whammy. Apparently, I have issues with my roles as a woman, mother, and wife. My thoughts on being a woman. First of all, I hated the biological fact that men are stronger than women. It made me so angry. I'll never forget the day that I realized that my oldest son had surpassed me in strength. We were helping a neighbor install sod in their backyard. I struggled to lift the heavy rolls of sod and set them in place. Then I noticed that my teenage son could lift them with ease. This was my little boy, who I brought into the world as a helpless baby. I carried him and nurtured him and took care of him. And now he was taller and stronger than I was. Although I was proud of him for using his strength in service, I was also jealous that what was so difficult for me was easy for him. We were doing the exact same job, but it was harder for me than for him. Furthermore, my husband was strong enough to outwork us both with the same amount of effort. It was so unfair. Soon after this experience, I had a second blow to my ego. We were carrying a large glass sliding door to install in an addition we were making to the house. I struggled as I carried my end of the heavy door. My son and his friend came over to help. I greatly appreciated the help, but I did not appreciate the way my son's friend brushed me aside like I was an insect. Move out of the way. We got this, he said dismissively. I was shocked and angry at this snot-nosed kid who treated me like I was helpless. My husband and I built our house together, not the kind of built a house where you choose the tile and paint colors and give instructions to the contractor, but the kind of built a house where you cut rebar, pour cement, pound nails, install shingles, sand drywall, lay tile and paint walls. I had done it all. I was not weak and helpless because I am a female. And yet, 
as I stepped aside to allow the boys to move the heavy door. They lifted it with ease. The evidence was before me that they were indeed stronger than I was, and it made me mad. It was so unfair. Who was responsible for this unequal distribution of physical power? Did I blame evolution or God? Either way, it totally sucked. Men are physically more powerful, which gives an obvious advantage in a might-makes-right world. Whenever I read a book like Memoirs of a Geisha, The Good Earth, or A Thousand Splendid Sons, which are set in misogynistic cultures, I got angry. How could anyone think of women as second-class citizens, servants, or chattel? The roles of men and women have been a recurring conundrum throughout global history. Are men and women the same? Are they different? And if they're different, then which gender is superior? I'm grateful that I live in a time and a place where women are valued. But even here in the United States, we don't have it sorted out. In the 1950s, Marilyn Monroe was the iconic symbol of the ideal woman. Her roles in the movies How to Marry a Millionaire and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes exemplify the expectation of women. In these movies, the differences between men and women are emphasized and exaggerated. Women use their feminine charm to lure and manipulate men. But they have little to offer besides their beauty. Nowadays, the expected role of women is a polar opposite from that of the 1950s. Whereas being a woman once meant being soft, curvy, but helplessly dependent, now the ideal woman is a powerful and sexy comic book superhero. She must be all-powerful and be able to do everything without any assistance whatsoever. The differences between men and women are minimized and repudiated. Femininity and the proclivity toward nurturing are eschewed as weakness. Furthermore, even if she accomplishes the new ideal, she is still replaceable. Think of all the James Bond movies. He finds a woman who meets every criteria. But in the next movie, she is never mentioned again. And he simply finds another one. I preferred to be Black Widow or Wonder Woman than the characters portrayed by Marilyn Monroe. But what if I didn't agree with either of the expectation options listed above? I didn't want to sit still and look pretty, nor did I want to be expected to carry the whole world on my shoulders. Wasn't there something in between? What if I wanted to be feminine and nurturing and strong? and capable, and useful, and valued. Yes, I struggled with the definition of what it means to be a woman, but I was not the only one who's grappling with this gender identity crisis. People wonder if gender matters at all. We can't seem to be able to figure out a way to respect and value differences without comparing and competing. It brought to mind the lesson we had at the women's retreat on complementary colors. Perhaps men and women are complementary, not that they need to be the same or that one is better than the other, but that they are different so that they can complete each other as equal partners. I was going to have to have a group complete conversation 
with all the men in the world as part of the process of coming to terms with a definition of womanhood that I could accept. I think I'll even try inviting them to be on my team so I don't feel like I'm competing against them in an ever-losing battle. I'm not sure that it will solve anything, but it's worth a try. Chapter 29 I Am My Kid's Mom My Thoughts on Being a Mom I loved it when Dr. Lara Schlesinger introduced herself by saying, I am my kid's mom. Her words add validation to the important role of motherhood. However, people do not read her books or listen to her radio program because she is a mom. They value and respect her because of her education and professional expertise. It is very difficult for a woman who is just a mom, to be valued in our society. When I was a school teacher, although it's not a very lucrative career, people honored and respected the altruistic sacrifices made for the benefit of the rising generation. However, in order for those sacrifices to count, apparently they must be made for other people's children. If you make those same sacrifices for your own children, then you're not valued as a productive member of society. I had the experience of being a stay-at-home mom, and it was very, very difficult. I also had the experience of being a working mom, and it was harder. It was not harder because going to work was more difficult than taking care of children at home. It was harder because in addition to all the stresses and challenges at work, a mom is still a mom. With all the mom responsibilities, there was just less time and energy to accomplish them. I also had a lot of guilt. When illness, accidents, and emergencies happened, I wasn't able to take care of things in the manner that I wanted. Working simply did not allow for the flexibility and adaptability necessary for the role of mothering. We made a decision that having me home with our children was more important than money. If I were a single mom, I'd have no choice but to do it all on my own. But since I have a companion, we can divide the labor. One thing that we could not divide equally was who has the babies. I couldn't say, okay, I had the last one, so it's your turn to have the next one. Nature decided that one for us. Having the babies would be my job. So, we decided to divide the labor in the traditional way. He would provide the necessities of life, and I would be primarily responsible for the nurturing of our children. But we would help each other as equal partners. Just because we made a conscious and informed decision, it still didn't make it easy. When I quit my job to be a stay-at-home mom years ago when my first child was born, I was the primary provider for our family. My income was nearly twice that of my husband's income since he was still in training for his chosen profession. Quitting my job meant certain deprivation. It would mean careful budgeting and doing without a lot of things. I was also keenly aware that this decision would leave me vulnerable since I had to rely on another person for my support, and it terrified me. 
My choice to be a stay-at-home mom wasn't a sign of weakness. It took a tremendous amount of courage and required a giant leap of faith. I was still in the process of getting used to these new adjustments of being a stay-at-home mom when a former high school classmate called out of the blue. I hadn't heard from her in years. Apparently, she had felt in competition with me in high school, but to be candidly honest, I had never even noticed. I had only recognized two people as my academic peers and rivals, and this girl had never even been in the running. She was calling for the sole purpose to boast about her successes and let me know how truly exceptional she really was. I listened with baffled curiosity as she listed all of her accomplishments, but didn't panic until she asked what I was doing now. Well, actually, I'm a mom, and I'm taking care of my family, I admitted with hesitation. I could never do that, she exclaimed with horror. I would go brain dead. You're wasting your life, and you were supposed to be so smart, she gloated in her ultimate triumph over me. For three days following her phone call, I walked around in a daze. Was I wasting my life? Had I made the wrong decision? Within a month, I received another phone call from a former classmate I hadn't heard from in years. Although he was not nearly as brash as the first caller had been, he also listed his successes and many accolades, and then laughed when he learned that I was just a mom. I felt humiliated. I chose to be a mother. I love my children and wouldn't have it any other way. And yet, I hate being weighed, measured, and found wanting. I hate that people judge me and assume that I'm a stay-at-home mom because I am unqualified to do anything else. The judgment is pretty universal, but the condemnation is usually felt most vehemently from other women. In some conversations, although I've said nothing inflammatory, I can feel a woman's defensiveness radiating toward me in the thoughts, what, you think you're a better mother than I am just because you're a stay-at-home mom? Other times, the thoughts or words are more condescending. You obviously aren't as capable as I am. I can do everything you do, bring home the bacon, and still make a difference in the world. I saw a funny yet sadly enlightening YouTube video produced by Similac and publicist Kaplan Thaler called The Motherhood. In the video, groups of similarly-minded mothers are taking verbal jabs at other groups who have a different approach. The breastfeeding mothers judge and condemn the bottle-feeding moms. The stay-at-home moms take jabs at the working moms and everybody is judging and condemning everybody else until they're ready to strike blows. Suddenly, they notice a runaway stroller going down a hill, and everybody rushes together to save the baby. The final words of the video are, No matter what our beliefs, we are parents first. Welcome to the sisterhood of motherhood. I really liked that conclusion. Wasn't this job hard enough without tearing each other down? Isn't it wonderful 
that there's more than one right way to do things. In trying to deal with my issues of my role of being a mother, I had a group complete conversation with all the women in the world and invited them to be on my team. I also needed to have a chat with a couple of former high school classmates. Chapter 30 Husbands and Wives My Thoughts on Being a Wife I was so jealous of my husband. It was so unfair that he got all the recognition and glory. People think he is so awesome, and he is. But I hate the fact that he's so much cooler than I am. If you take a look at his resume, you'd think, wow. And if you look at mine, you'd think, oh. Once, long ago, our accomplishments seemed pretty equivalent. But now, he sounds so amazing. He is an airline pilot, he is an author, he builds airplanes and canoes and hovercrafts, etc. And I'm just a mom. Nothing I had done looked amazing to anybody. I was like a drab little peafowl next to her peacocked husband. Once again, I was invisible. Our roles were so unfair. I was the one who had to change my name to take his. I was the one who had to sacrifice my body to bring children into the world. Anything that was mundane, repetitive, boring, annoying, messy, or uncomfortable was my job. Furthermore, Nothing I did ever stayed done. I made dinner. It got eaten. I changed a diaper. It got pooped on. I washed clothes. They got dirty. I cleaned the house. It got messy again. I mowed the lawn. The grass grew. I pulled out the weeds, and they simply grew back. When our kids were growing up, Lewis would be gone at work for days at a time while I took care of the home, yard, and children by myself. When he came home from a trip, all the kids would rush to him with hugs and cries of joy. He was a superstar. It was the airport scene of my youth all over again. I made children do their homework, brush their teeth, and clean their rooms while he bought them ice cream and took them on playdates that he called looking for trouble. My grown children often reenacted a story of one day years ago when I lost it. I can't remember the circumstances that led to it, but I suddenly jumped up and began pantomiming a lion tamer flicking an imaginary whip. I said, this is the mom. Clean your room, I flicked my imaginary whip. Brush your teeth, I flicked my imaginary whip again. Do your homework. Down came the imaginary whip again. Practice the piano. I again brought down the imaginary whip. Then I changed from a lion tamer into a fairy and danced around the kitchen saying, This is the dad. I get to be the fairy godfather. Let's go play. Who wants to go looking for trouble? Let's go get ice cream. My family was startled at first by my unexpected outburst and then began to laugh. It was funny, but oh so true. Did I want to heal, or did I want to be validated in my anger? As memories resurfaced and feelings clarified, it could go either way. It would be determined by what I chose to do 
with those memories and feelings? Did I feed my jealousy and anger or let it go? Thinking about dealing with anger reminds me of an experience with one of my sons who has an autism spectrum disorder. When he was a little boy and I took him and his younger sister on an outing to the park, she would always emerge with a new friend and he would emerge with a new enemy. My daughter would say something like, Mom, I met a girl and she was so nice. We played on the slide together and we played tag. My son would say, Mom, do you see that boy over there? He is such a jerk. Do you know what he did? He was always angry and felt completely self-justified that it was entirely the other guy's fault. I didn't know about the phrase, if you spot it, you got it, but it certainly applied. We were meeting regularly with a counselor to help him with some behavioral issues and his anger management issues. In one of the sessions, the counselor was teaching about anger. Anger gives a false sense of power and justice, he said, but it is a counterfeit. It is not real power, and it is not real justice. He went on to teach some tools my son could use to help him curb his anger. It took a long time and a lot of effort, but my son metamorphosed from a whirling dervish of destructive fury to an admirable and remarkable young man. He chose peace and healing, and it transformed him. I was proud of my son. He was a good example to me. I wanted to be able to do what he did. I wanted to choose peace and healing. I needed to have one, or perhaps several, complete conversations with my husband. I also needed to invite him to be on my team. If there's one person in the whole world that I needed to be on my team, it was him. I couldn't be in competition with him. Being jealous of his accomplishments didn't do me any good. The truth was that he shared everything with me. When he succeeded, I won too. The richest experiences of my life have come because of him. Without him, I wouldn't have my children and the wonderful memories that we've made. In turn, the most rewarding experiences of his life came because of me. Our family was his joy as well, and that never would have happened without me. I felt glad that he is awesome. I wouldn't want it any other way. I was glad that he was my companion and partner. I love him. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this section of the book. The next section is available on the following podcast. Please subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. The book Crushed is available on Amazon, and the audiobook version will soon be available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Again, my name is Linda Bjork. You can find more information by searching for Linda Bjork, Hope for Healing, Linda Bjork, Two Good Things, and Linda Bjork, Innovative Joy. In closing, I'd like to leave you with an inspirational quote by Henry Nguyen. Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. I hope that today you choose joy. See you next time. 
on Linda's Corner.